the ways of God in nature, as in providence, are not as our ways, nor are the models that we frame in any way commensurate to the vastness, profundity, and unsearchableness of his works, which have a depth in them greater than the well of Democritus. Joseph Glanville This epigraph opens Edgar Allan Poe's A Descent into the Maelstrom, which I will be reading today. But before I get to that, I wanted to set up the importance of stories like this, stories that you may or may not have heard of, but that have had such a profound impact on our society today that it is immeasurable. Edgar Allan Poe, along with Nathaniel Hawthorne, were the early science fiction creators and pioneers, not just in America, but in the world. Of course, before them was Mary Shelley, and she was the true progenitor of science fiction. But after her, and quickly after her, were Nathaniel Hawthorne, who very much paved the way in many ways, in ways that she did not, for what we have not only in the science fiction genre, but in how we experience science as a society. Science fiction, literature in general, words, language, has an immense effect on the consciousness, on your consciousness, whether or not you are aware of it. And it is in vital importance that you become aware of it. Now, for Edgar Allan Poe, for better and worse, or for worse, Poe had two conflicting, conflicting loves. The literature of spiritual terror, which you will see in this story, as well as other ones that we will be reading. This is, you know, uh, gothic tales of haunted castles, for instance. But you'll also see this in the story, uh, A Descent into the Maelstrom, where the character all of a sudden has a kind of spiritual terror that overcomes him and, in fact, calms him in a way in a supernatural way. And so he's able to observe very calmly and rationally what's going on. And the other one, the other love, is the literature of precise empirical science. So these two things have had a big impact in our culture all the way to today. That science fiction in Hawthorne and Shelley and all the science fiction stories, or many of them, a spiritual terror coinciding with precise empirical science. They have merged together in a way that may or may not be good. Poe, as you probably know, invented the tale of the great detective, in which the cogitating sleuth and his merely human companion bring order into a world terrified by a hideous crime. This is something that is evolved in the 20th century into the police procedural, the, the CSIs and the uh, law and orders and, and any p- police show. But they all go back to Edgar Allan Poe and the tale of the great detective. And we re- will read some of those in the future. And we'll read even one in this one. But w- the tale of the great detective and the science fiction that he did entails like Descent into the Maelstrom Poe indulges in scientific detail to impose an ever vaster sense of nature's power on the consciousness of a captivated reader or listener, as in you get with the uh, characters of Poe, the, the great detectives, and there's always that, you know, bumbling or less adequate reader or accompaniment. Just like Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did this with Sherlock Holmes. So he did this after Poe, he got the idea from Poe. You have Sherlock Holmes, and you have to have a Watson. You have to have both. And you see this even in the procedurals today, although it's shifted a little bit. You'll you'll have, you know, usually a lead detective, but the procedure itself has become the kind of great detective. Like, the procedure has become what the great detective in the past was. It's actually just, we're following procedures. And now it's just, you know, action of really exciting, smart people who can run fast and fight really well. And they're able to also follow the procedure set before them by greater men. Now, in this story, A Descent into the Maelstrom, 
as the story progresses, you're going to see horror and fear mount under the unforgiving laws of physical bodies. And the plot of the story turns on scientific observation and a clever employment of that observation that Bacon would have admired. Now, I'm going to say that this marks the beginning of a main branch of science fiction, the inventing puzzle, the clever and nearly believable tale that brings us high romantic adventure, yet finally reveals the world as a place we can understand and control. These are the tales of ratiocination, as Edgar Allan Poe called them, where we look for reasons. Reasons. Now, here's an important point about this. And in this story, you're really going to hear this, where what, what's going to happen, I'm just going to give you a broad, very quick little overview, is an old man is going to tell a story to a young, frightened man on the cliff of this Norwegian area where these vortices, these whirlpools collide during a, a certain um, you know, times of the year to make one massive whirlpool a huge vortex that sucks in everything in its path, brings it into the, you know, the bottom of the vortex, whatever happens to be down there, nobody knows because you can't make it down there and crushes those things. And in the story, in the, the writing of it, you'll hear what's really interesting is you're going to hear descriptions scientifically of this phenomenon. Now you can look this stuff up. I don't know of that many you know, enormous whirlpools. These are not real things, but he's, you know, Poe is using the rhetoric of science to describe this false thing, you know, what it could look like were it to exist. And in fact, there's even a description, a, a quote, a long paragraph by a so, you know, so-called expert. And then the person who's actually there witnessing it with the old man says that this is not correct. Like there's no way that he could actually know this um, by any of the things that he said because it's too loud to have heard the scream of the bears that got sucked into it, so on and so forth. So you're going to, and then you're going to hear a tale, the bulk of the story is a tale told by the old man where he got sucked into it and how he got out. Now, the last thing I wanted to say before we get into this is something about Hawthorne and his romantic use of language. So if you've listened to the previous podcast on science fiction, I did several episodes on Nathaniel Hawthorne's short stories where I read the short story and we talked about it. And the short stories were Dr. Heidegger's Experiment, Rappuccini's Daughter, and The Birthmark. And then there's one that we're going to explore in the future, which is The Artist of the Beautiful. And this is one that is a, a kind of answer to the problem innate in science as Hawthorne saw it. And now, of course, Edgar Allan Poe has his own kind of way of looking at this. So Hawthorne wrote in a very high romantic language. His rhetoric was romance, the, the language of fairy tales and high moral stories from hundreds of years ago and mythology. Poe is writing in the rhetoric of science. And this is what I wanted to end with before we get into a reading of the story. The story is about 50 minutes long, but I think you'll enjoy it in and of itself. Now, here's something most people don't know. In 1662, the Royal Society was formed in London. Now, the Royal Society is what is the precursor. It, it was the Royal Society of Science, but it wasn't called the Royal Society of Science at the time. It was simply the Royal Society. Now, they understood the, the members who founded it that anything they would discover through science that did not um, accord with the teachings of the church ran the risk of conflict with authority. Not that much longer, or not, not that much prior to this, Galileo had been imprisoned and almost executed for telling them the truth. And during this time, Newton does something even more dramatic. So the greatest conflict of authority was Newton, proving the universality of gravity. Because what this did, more even than saying that the Earth is not the center of the universe, what he did was even worse. Because he proved the planets in the heavens, the heavens, were governed by the... That's the realm of God. The heavens 
were governed by the same rules that controlled the falling of an apple on earth. And we're going to get into the importance in future episodes of the image that Newton fabricated with that falling apple. He was smart in fabricating that story. And I contend, although we don't know for sure, to be, to be perfectly honest, but I contend that he clearly uh, fabricated and made that story up basically for what we can call today marketing purposes, to sell his ideas. But what he did with the universal, by proving the universality of gravity was it suggested to people that heaven and earth are not separate realms. So this means that either heaven is secular and fallen, or somehow we are divine. Now, of course, Newton did become president of the Royal Society. And the society set out to create a rhetoric, a language, a way of writing, speaking, conversing with the rest of the world to, uh, that would evade responsibility so that natural philosophers, if you remember from my Hawthorne stories, the term scientist was not used until the late 1800s. They were all natural philosophers. That they would not get in trouble with the church. So I'm going to lay out four things that they identified. And this is from, this is um, extrapolated, these aren't exact quotes, but uh, the ideas, the four things are from Bishop Spratt's History of the Royal Society, which was written in 1667. It was more of a pamphlet on what you should do than an actual history. So the, the four things is one, facts need to be reported objectively rather than subjectively. Never, never say, I never felt so hot. Say instead, it was so hot that a chicken egg cracked on a paving stone was able to solidify within a moment. Number two, verbs are typically passive rather than active. So do not say, I poured the water into the concentrated sulfuric acid, which bubbled over and blasted me in the face, and I ran out of the lab. Say instead, the water was poured into the beaker of sulfuric acid, and thus the investigator fled the laboratory. So the point is this. You do not want yourself to be the observer. Then you are culpable if you are the observer. So all responsible people should be able to, all reasonable people, I should say, should be able to observe and even duplicate your hypotheses through science. Now, the third thing, in addition, key terms should be Latin or Latinate rather than English or Germanic. And you're going to see that a little bit in uh, A Descent into the Maelstrom, and you'll see it even more in other ones, uh, other stories by Poe that we'll be reading, like the facts in the case of Monsieur Voldemort. We talk about Luna, for instance, not the moon. We say enumeration rather than counting. We, in other words, what they did was they hearkened back to pre-Renaissance when all scholars, all educated men, communicated to each other in the common language for scholars of Latin. Okay, and the fourth thing, whenever possible, numbers are used. Whenever possible, use numbers. So don't say it felt so hot. Say the temperature of the investigator's body was 98.9% or, or degrees. So the point is that there was a rhetoric that was consciously developed by the Royal Society for a variety of reasons, but one major motivation for them was to evade the responsibility of being attacked for their discoveries so they wouldn't share the fate of Galileo. Now, this has passed down over the generations, if you listen to my podcast on Sundays where I'm exploring William Wordsworth and you see all the William Wordsworth podcasts that I'm doing in his romantic manifestos and in his romantic um, um, burst of energy where he is in a somewhat fighting against this very thing. He actually believes, and I agree with him, that poetry and poetic um, verbiage and usage of language and romantic usage of language gives the kind of finer breath to knowledge. It gives life to knowledge. And there is an important aspect that I think we might miss if we 
misunderstand how separating the subject from the object happens. And this is all happening in a specific time in history when you have philosophers who are trying to understand these kinds of concepts. So this is what's going on in Edgar Allan Poe in the 19th century in America now adopts this rhetoric and he puts it into stories. So when you read the tales of the great detective that he does, when you read those tales, and we'll read them after we read some of these science fiction ones down the line, you'll see the kind of, you know, high reason that those characters use, just like Sherlock Holmes is very explicitly reasonable, only rational, only logical. He seems to have no emotion, although we, we learn that that's not quite accurate as we explore his character. Okay, so enjoy A Descent into the Maelstrom by Edgar Allan Poe. And pay attention as you enjoy, I hope, this reading. Try to pay attention to the language that's being used and how they're using the language of science to manipulate the reader. Do you believe this narrator? It sounds extremely believable, which poses a kind of problem. That if you can use this language to make up stuff, then how can we make sure we're not being bamboozled? Descent into the Maelstrom by Edgar Allan Poe. The ways of God in nature, as in providence, are not as our ways, nor are the models that we frame in any way commensurate to the vastness, profundity, and unsearchableness of his works, which have a depth in them greater than the well of Democritus. Joseph Glanville. We had now reached the summit of the loftiest crag. For some minutes the old man seemed too much exhausted to speak. Not long ago, said he at length, and I could have guided you on this route as well as the youngest of my sons. But about three years past, there happened to me an event such as never happened before to mortal man, or at least such as no man ever survived to tell of. And the six hours of deadly terror, which I then endured, have broken me up body and soul. You suppose me a very old man, but I am not. It took less than a single day to change these hairs from a jetty black to white, to weaken my limbs, and to unstring my nerves so that I tremble at the least exertion and am frightened at a shadow. Do you know I can scarcely look over this little cliff without getting giddy? The little cliff, upon whose edge he had so carelessly thrown himself down to rest that the weightier portion of his body hung over it, while he was only kept from falling by the tenure of his elbow, on its extreme and slippery edge, this little cliff arose, a sheer unobstructed precipice of black, shining rock, some fifteen or sixteen hundred feet from the world of crags beneath us. Nothing would have tempted me to be within half dozen yards of its brink. In truth, so deeply was I excited by this perilous position of my companion that I fell at full length upon the ground, clung to the shrubs around me, and dared not even glance upward at the sky. While I struggled in vain to divest myself of the idea that the foundations of the mountain were in danger from the fury of the winds, 
It was long before I could reason myself into sufficient courage to sit up and look out into the distance. You must get over these fancies, said the guide, for I have brought you here that you might have the best possible view of the scene of that event I mentioned, and to tell you the whole story with the spot just under your eye. We are now, he continued in that particularizing manner which distinguished him, we are now close upon the Norwegian coast, in the 68th degrees of latitude, in the great province of Nordland, and in the dreary district of Lofenden. The mountain upon whose top we sit is Helsingen, the cloudy. Now, raise yourself up a little higher. Hold on to the grass if you feel giddy, so, and look out, beyond the belt of vapor beneath us into the sea. I looked dizzily, and beheld a wide expanse of ocean whose waters wore so inky a hue as to bring at once to my mind the Nubian geographer's account of the Mare Tenembarum, a panorama more deplorably desolate no human imagination can conceive. To the right and left, as far as the eye could reach, there lay outstretched, like ramparts of the world, lines of horridly black and beetling cliff, whose character of gloom was but the more forcibly illustrated by the surf which reared high up against its white and ghastly crest, howling and shrieking forever. Just opposite the promontory upon whose apex we were placed, and at a distance of some five or six miles out at sea, there was visible a small, bleak-looking island, or, more properly, its position was discernible through the wilderness of surge in which it was enveloped. About two miles nearer the land arose another of smaller size, hideously craggy and barren, and encompassed at various intervals by a cluster of dark rocks. The appearance of the ocean in the space between the more distant island and the shore had something very unusual about it. Although at the time so strong a gale was blowing landward that a brig in the remote offing lay to under a double-reefed trysail and constantly plunged her whole hull out of sight. Still, there was here nothing like a regular swell, but only a short, quick, angry cross-dashing of water in every direction, as well in the teeth of the wind as otherwise. Of foam, there was little except in the immediate vicinity of the rocks. The islands in the distance, resumed the old man, is called by the Norwegian Verg. The one midway is Moscow. That a mile to the northward is Ambaren. Yonder are Eslisen, Hotholm, Keldham, Swarven, and Bachholm. Further off, between Moscow and Verg, are Otterholm, Vilmum, Sandfassen, and Stockholm. These are the true names of the places. But why is it has been thought necessary to name them all? It is more than either you or I can understand. Do you hear anything? Do you see any change in the water? We had now been about ten minutes upon the top of Helsingen, to which we had descended from the interior of Lofenden, so that we had caught no glimpse of the sea until it had burst upon us from the summit. As the old man spoke, I became aware of a loud and gradually increasing sound, like the moaning of a vast herd of buffaloes upon an American prairie, and at the same moment I perceived that what seemed in term the chopping character of the ocean beneath us was rapidly changing into a current which set to the eastward. Even while I gazed, this current acquired a monstrous velocity. Each moment added to its speed, to its headlong impetuosity. In five minutes the whole sea, as far as Verg, was lashed into ungovernable 
fury. But it was between Moscow and the coast that the main uproar held its sway. Here the vast bed of the waters seemed and scarred into a thousand conflicting channels burst suddenly into frenzied convulsion, heaving, boiling, hissing, gyrating in gigantic and innumerable vortices, and all whirling and plunging on to the eastward with a rapidity which water never elsewhere assumes, except in its precipitous descents. In a few minutes more, there came over the scene another radical alteration. The general surface grew somewhat more smooth, and the whirlpools, one by one, disappeared, while prodigious streaks of foam became apparent where none had been seen before. These streaks, at length, spreading out to a great distance and entering into combination, took unto themselves the gyratory motion of the subsided vortices, and seemed to form the germ of another more vast... Suddenly, very suddenly, this assumed a distinct and definite existence in a circle of more than a mile in diameter. The edge of the whirl was represented by a broad belt of gleaming spray, but no particle of this slipped into the mouth of the terrific funnel, whose interior, as far as the eye could fathom it, was a smooth, shining, and jet-black wall of water, inclined to the horizon at an angle of some 45 degrees, spreading dizzily round and round with a swaying and a sweltering motion, and sending forth to the winds an appalling voice, half shriek, half roar, such as not even the mighty cataract of Niagara ever lifts up in its agony to heaven. The mountain trembled to its very base, and the rock rocked. I threw myself upon my face and clung to the scant herbage in an excess of nervous agitation. This, said I at length to the old man, this can be nothing else than the great whirlpool of the maelstrom. So it is sometimes termed, said he. We Norwegians call it the Moskostrom, from the island of Moscow in the Midway. The ordinary accounts of this vortex had by no means prepared for me what I saw. That of Jonas Ramus, which is perhaps the most circumstantial of any, cannot impart the faintest conception either of the magnificence or of the horror of the scene, or of the wild, bewildering sense of the novel which confounds the beholder. I am not sure from what point of view the writer in question surveyed it, nor at what time, but it could neither have been from the summit of Helsingen, not during a storm. There are some passages of his description, nevertheless, which may be quoted for their details, although their effect is exceedingly feeble in conveying an impression of the spectacle. Between Lofenden and Moscow, he says... The depth of the water is between 36 and 40 fathoms. But on the other side, towards Ver, Verg, this depth decreases so as not to afford a convenient passage for a vessel, without the risk of splitting on the rocks, which happens even in the calmest weather. When it is flood, the streams runs up the country between Lofenden and Moscow, with a boisterous rapidity. But the roar of its impetuous ebb to the sea, is scarce equaled by the loudest and most dreadful cataracts. The noise being heard several leagues off, and the vortices or pits are of such an extent and depth, that if a ship comes within its attraction, it is inevitably absorbed and carried down to the bottom, and there beat to pieces against the rocks. And when the water relaxes, the fragments thereof are thrown up again. But these intervals of tranquility are only at the turn of the ebb and flood and in calm weather, and last but a quarter of an hour, its violence gradually returning. When the stream is most boisterous and its fury heightened by a storm, it is dangerous to come within a Norway mile of it, 
Boats, yachts, and ships have been carried away by not guarding against it before they were within its reach. It likewise happens frequently that whales come too near the stream and are overpowered by its violence, and then it is impossible to determine their howlings and bellowings and their fruitless struggle to disengage themselves. A bear once, at attempting to swim from Lofenden to Moscow, was caught by the stream and borne down while he roared terribly, so as to be heard on shore. Large stalks of firs and pine trees, after being absorbed by the current, rise again, broken and torn, to such a degree as if bristles grew upon them. This plainly shows the bottom to consist of craggy rocks, among which they are whirled to and fro. This stream is regulated by the flux and reflux of the sea, it being constantly high and low, water every six hours. In the year 1645, early in the morning of Sexagisma, Sunday, it raged with such noise and impetuosity that the very stones of the houses on the coast fell to the ground. In regard to the depth of the water, I could not see how this could have been ascertained at all in the immediate vicinity of the vortex. The forty fathoms must have reference only to portions of the channel close upon the shore either of Moscow or Lofenden. The depth in the center of the Moscow Strom must be immeasurably greater, and no better proof of this fact is necessary than can be obtained from even the sidelong glance into the abyss of the whirl, which may be had from the highest crag of Helsingen. Looking down from this pinnacle upon the howling phlegathon below, I could not help smiling at the simplicity with which the honest Jonas Ramus records. As a matter difficult of belief, the anecdotes of the whales and the bears, for it appeared to me, in fact, a self-evident thing, that the largest ship of the line in existence, coming within the influence of that deadly attraction, could resist it as little as a feather the hurricane, and must disappear bodily and at once. The attempts to account for the phenomenon, some of which I remember, seemed to me sufficiently plausible in perusal, now wore a very different and unsatisfactory aspect. The idea generally received is that this, as well as three smaller vortices among the Faroe Islands, quote, have no other cause than the collision of waves rising and falling at flux and reflux against a ridge of rocks and shelves, which confines the water so that it precipitates itself like a cataract, and thus the higher the flood rises, the deeper must the fall be. And the natural result of all is a whirlpool or vortex, the prodigious suction of which is sufficiently known by lesser experiments, end quote. These are the words of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Kircher and others imagine that in the center of the channel of the maelstrom is an abyss penetrating the globe, and issuing in some very remote part, the Gulf of Bothnia, being somewhat decidedly named in one instance. This opinion, idle in itself, was the one to which, as I gazed, my imagination most readily assented. And mentioning it to the guide, I was rather surprised to hear him say that, although it was the view almost universally entertained of the subject by the Norwegians, it nevertheless was not his own. As to the former notion, he confessed his inability to comprehend it. And here I agreed with him. For, however conclusive on paper, it becomes altogether unintelligible and even absurd amid the thunder of the abyss. You have had a good look at the world now, said the old man, and if you will creep round this crag so as to get in its lee and deaden the roar of the water, I will tell you a story that will convince you I ought to know something of the Moscow Strom. I placed myself as desired, and he proceeded. Myself and my two brothers once owned a schooner-rigged smack of about seventy tons burden, with which we were in the habit of fishing among the islands beyond Moscow, nearly to Verg. 
in all violent eddies at sea, there is good fishing, as proper opportunities, if one has only the courage to attempt it. But among the whole of the Lofudnem coastmen, we three were the only ones who made a regular business of going out to the islands, as I tell you. The usual grounds are a great way lower down to the southward. There, fish can be got at all hours, without much risk, and therefore these places are preferred. The choice spots over here among the rocks, however, not only yield the finest variety, but in far greater abundance, so that we often got in a single day what the more timid of the craft could not scrape together in a week. In fact, we made it a matter of desperate speculation, the risk of life standing instead of labor, and courage answering for capital. We kept the smack in a cove about five miles higher up the coast than this, and it was our practice, in fine weather, to take advantage of the fifteen minutes slack to push across the main channel of the Moscow Strom, far above the pool, and then drop down upon Anchorage somewhere near Otherham, or Sandalfsen, where the eddies are not so violent as elsewhere. Here, we used to remain until nearly time for slack water again, when we weighed and made for home. We never set out upon this expedition without a steady sidewind for going and coming, one that we felt sure would not fail us before our return, and we seldom made a miscalculation upon this point. Twice, during six years, we were forced to stay all night at anger on account of a dead calm, which is a rare thing indeed just about here, and once we had to remain on the ground nearly a week, starving to death owing to a gale which blew up shortly after our arrival and made the channel too boisterous to be thought of. Upon this occasion, we should have been driven out to sea in spite of everything, for the whirlpools threw us around and round so violently that at length we fouled our anchor and dragged it. If it had not been that we drifted into one of the innumerable cross-currents, here today and gone tomorrow, which drove us under the lee of Flimon, where by good luck we brought up. I could not tell you the twentieth part of the difficulties we encountered on the ground. It is a bad spot to be in, even in good weather, but we made shift always to run the gauntlet of the Moscowstrom itself without accident, although at times my heart has been in my mouth when we happen to be a minute or so behind or before the slack. The wind sometimes was not as strong as we thought it at starting, and then we made rather less way than we could wish, while the current rendered the smack unmanageable. My eldest brother had a son eighteen years old, and I had two stout boys of my own. These would have been of great assistance at such times, and using the sweeps as well as afterward in fishing. But somehow, although we ran the risk ourselves, we had not the heart to let the young ones get into the danger. For, after all it is said and done, it was a horrible danger. And that is the truth. It is now within a few days of three years since what I am going to tell you occurred. It was on the 10th day of July, 18, a day which the people of this part of the world will never forget, for it was the one in which blew the most terrible hurricane that ever came out of the heavens. And yet, all the morning and indeed until late in the afternoon, there was a gentle and steady breeze from the southwest, while the sun shone brightly, so that the oldest seamen among us could not have foreseen what was to follow. The three of us, my two brothers and myself, had crossed over to the islands about two o'clock p.m. and had soon nearly loaded the smack with fine fish, which, we all remarked, were more plenty that day than we had ever known them. It was just seven, 
by my watch, when we weighed and started for home, so as to make the worst of the strom at slack water, which we knew would be at eight. We set out with a fresh wind on our starboard quarter, and for some time spanked along at a great rate, never dreaming of danger, for indeed we saw not the slightest reason to apprehend it. All at once, we were taken aback by a breeze from over Helsingen. This was most unusual, something that had never happened to us before, and I began to feel a little uneasy, without exactly knowing why. We put the boat on the wind, but could make no headway at all for the eddies, and I was upon the point of proposing to return to the anchorage when looking astern, we saw the whole horizon covered with a singular copper-colored cloud and rose with the most amazing velocity. In the meantime, the breeze that had headed us off fell away and we were dead becalmed, drifting about in every direction. This state of things, however, did not last long enough to give us time to think about it. In less than a minute, the storm was upon us. In less than two, the sky was entirely overcast. And what with this and the driving spray, it became suddenly so dark that we could not see each other in the smack. Such a hurricane as then blew, it is folly to attempt describing. The eldest seamen in Norway never experienced anything like it. We had let our sails go by the run before it cleverly took us, but at the first puff, both our masts went by the board, as if they had been sawed off. The mainmast, taking with it my youngest brother, who had lashed himself to it for safety. Our boat was the lightest feather of a thing that ever sat upon water. It had a complete flush deck, with only a small hatch near the bow, and this hatch it had always been our custom to batten down when about to cross the strom, by way of precaution against the chopping seas. But for this circumstance we should have foundered at once, for we lay entirely buried for some moments. How my older brother escaped destruction I cannot say, for I never had an opportunity of ascertaining. For my part, as soon as I had let the foresail run, I threw myself flat on the deck, with my feet against the narrow gunwale of the bow, and with my hands grasping a ring bolt near the foot of the foremast. It was mere instinct that prompted me to do this, which was undoubtedly the very best thing I could have done, for I was too much flurried to think. For some moments we were completely deluged, as I say, and all this time I held my breath and clung to the bolt. When I could stand it no longer, I raised myself upon my knees, still keep holding with my hands, and thus got my head clear. Presently, our little boat gave herself a shake, just as a dog does in coming out of the water, and thus rid herself in some measure of the sea. I was now trying to get the better of the stupor that had come over me, and to collect my senses so as to see what was to be done, when I felt somebody grasp my arm. It was my elder brother, and my heart leaped for joy, for I had made sure that he was overboard. But the next moment all this joy was turned into horror, for he put his mouth close to my ear and screamed out the word, Moskostrom. No one ever will know what my feelings were at that moment. I shook from head to foot, as if I had had the most violent fit of the ague. I knew what he meant by that one word well enough. I knew what he wished to make me understand. With the wind that now drove us on, we were bound for the whirl of the strom, and nothing could save us. You perceive that in crossing the strom channel, 
we always went a long way up above the world, even in the calmest weather, and then had to wait and watch carefully for the slack. But now, we were driving right upon the pool itself, and in such a hurricane as this. To be sure, I thought, we shall get there just about the slack. There is some little hope in that. But in the next moment, I cursed myself for being so great a fool as to dream of hope at all. I knew very well that we were doomed had we been ten times a ninety-gun ship. By this time, the first fury of the tempest had spent itself, or perhaps we did not feel it so much as we scudded before it. But at all events, the seas, which at first had been kept down by the wind and lay flat and frothing, now got up into absolute mountains. A singular change, too, had come over the heavens. Around in every direction, it was still as black as pitch, but nearly overhead, there burst out, all at once, a circular rift of clear sky, as clear as I ever saw, and of a deep bright blue, and through it were blazed forth the full moon with a luster that I never before knew her to wear. She lit up everything about us with the greatest distinctness, but, oh God, what a scene it was to light up. I now made one or two attempts to speak to my brother, but in some manner, which I could not understand, the din had so increased that I could not make him hear a single word, although I screamed at the top of my voice in his ear. Presently he shook his head, looking as pale as death, and held up one of his fingers as if to say, Listen. At first, I could not make out what he meant, but soon a hideous thought flashed upon me. I dragged my watch from its fob. It was not going. I glanced at its face by the moonlight and then burst into tears as I flung it far away into the ocean. It had run down at seven o'clock. We were behind the time of the slack, and the whirl of the strong was in full fury. When a boat is well built, properly trimmed and not deep laden, the waves in a strong gale, when she is going large, seem always to slip from beneath her, which appears very strange to a landman, and this is what is called riding in sea phrase. Well, so far we had ridden the swells very cleverly, but presently a gigantic sea happened to take us right under the counter and bore us with it as it rose, up, up, as if into the sky. I would not have believed that any wave could rise so high, and then down we came with a sweep, a slide, and a plunge that made me feel sick and dizzy, as if I were falling from some lofty mountaintop in a dream. But while we were up, I had thrown a glance around, and that one glance was all sufficient. I saw our exact position in an instant. The Moscowstrom whirlpool was about a quarter of a mile dead ahead, but no more like the everyday Moscowstrom than the whirl, as you now see it, is like a mill race. If I had not known where we were and what we had to expect, I should not have recognized the place at all. As it was... I voluntarily closed my eyes in horror. The lids clenched themselves together as if in a spasm. It could not have been more than two minutes afterward until we suddenly felt the waves subside and were enveloped in them. The boat made a sharp half-turn to larboard and then shot off in its new direction like a thunderbolt. At the same moment, the roaring noise of the water was completely drowned in a kind of shrill shriek, such a sound as you might imagine given out by the waste pipes of many thousand steam vessels letting off their steam altogether. 
We were now in the belt of a surf that always surrounds the world, and I thought, of course, that another moment would plunge us into the abyss, down which we could only see indistinctly on account of the amazing velocity with which we were borne along. The boat did not seem to sink into the water at all, but to skim like an air bubble upon the surface of the surge. Her starboard side was next to the world, and on the larboard side arose the world of ocean we had left. It stood like a huge writhing wall between us and the horizon. It may appear strange, but now, when we were in the very jaws of the gulf, I felt more composed than when we were only approaching it. Having made up my mind to hope no more, I got rid of a great deal of the terror which unmanned me at first. I supposed it was despair that strung my nerves. It may look like boasting, but what I tell you is truth. I began to reflect how magnificent a thing it was to die in such a manner, and how foolish it was in me to think of so paltry a consideration as my own individual life, in view of so wonderful a manifestation of God's power. I do believe that I blushed with shame when this idea crossed my mind. After a little while, I became possessed with the keenest curiosity about the world itself. I positively felt a wish to explore its depths, even at the sacrifice I was going to make. And my principal grief was that I should never be able to tell my old companions on shore about the mysteries I should see. These, no doubt, were singular fancies to occupy a man's mind in such extremity, and I have often thought since that the revolutions of the boat around the pool might have rendered me a little light-headed. There was another circumstance which tended to restore my self-possession, and this was the cessation of the wind, which could not reach us in our present situation, for... As you saw yourself, the belt of a surf is considerably lower than the general bed of the ocean, and this latter now towered above us, a high, black, mountainous ridge. If you have never been at sea in a heavy gale, you can form no idea of the confusion of mine occasioned by the wind and spray together. They blind, deafen, and strangle you and take away all power of action or reflection. Just as death-condemned felons in prison are allowed petty indulgences, forbidden them while their doom is yet uncertain. How often we made the circuit of the belt, it is impossible to say. We careered round and round for perhaps an hour, flying rather than floating, getting gradually more and more into the middle of the surge, and then nearer and nearer to its horrible inner edge. All this time, I had never let go of the ring bolt. My brother was at the stern, holding on to a small empty water cask, which had been securely lashed under the coop of the counters, and was the only thing on deck that had not been swept overboard when the gale first took us. As we approached the brink of the pit, he let go his hold upon this and made for the ring, from which, in the agony of his terror, he endeavored to force my hands as it was not large enough to afford us both a secure grasp. I had never felt deeper grief than when I saw him attempt this act, although I knew he was a madman when he did it, a raving maniac through sheer fright. I did not care, however, to contest the point with him. I knew it would make no difference whether either of us held on at all. So I let him have the bolt and went astern to the cask. This there was no great difficulty in doing, for the smack flew round steadily enough and upon an even keel, only swaying to and fro with the immense sweep and swelters of the world. Scarcely had I secured myself in my new position, 
when we gave a wild lurch to starboard and rushed headlong into the abyss. I muttered a hurried prayer to God and thought all was over. As I felt the sickening sweep of the descent, I had instinctively tightened my hold upon the barrel and closed my eyes. For some seconds, I dared not open them. While I expected instant destruction and wondered that I was not already in my death struggles with the water. But moment after moment elapsed. I still live. The sense of falling had ceased, and the motion of the vessel seemed much as it had been before, while in the belt of foam, with the exception that she now lay more along. I took courage and looked once again upon the scene. Never shall I forget the sensation of awe, horror, and admiration with which I gazed about me. The boat appeared to be hanging, as if by magic, midway down upon the interior surface of a funnel vast in circumference, prodigious in depth, and whose perfectly smooth sides might have been mistaken for ebony, but for the bewildering rapidity with which they spun around and for the gleaming and ghastly radiance they shot forth as the rays of the full moon from that circular rift amid the clouds which I have already described, streamed in a flood of golden glory along the black walls and far away down into the inmost recesses of the abyss. At first, I was too much confused to observe anything accurately, the general burst of terrific grandeur was all that I beheld. When I recovered myself a little, however, my gaze fell instinctively downward. In this direction, I was able to obtain an unobstructed view from the manner in which the smack hung on the inclined surface of the pool. She was quite upon an even keel. That is to say, her deck lay in a plane parallel with that of the water. But this ladder sloped at an angle of more than 45 degrees, so that we seemed to be lying upon our beam ends. I could not help observing, nevertheless, that I had scarcely more difficulty in maintaining my hold and footing in this situation than if we had been upon a dead level. And this, I suppose, was owing to the speed at which we revolved. The rays of the moon seemed to search the very bottom of the profound gulf, but still I could make out nothing distinctly on account of a thick mist in which there hung a magnificent rainbow, like the narrow and tottering bridge which Muslimen say is the only pathway between time and eternity. This mist or spray, was no doubt occasioned by the clashing of the great walls of the funnel as they all met together at the bottom. But the yell that went up to the heavens from out of that mist I dare not attempt to describe. Our first slide into the abyss itself from the belt of foam above had carried us a great distance down the slope, but our farther descent was by no means proportionate. Round and round we swept, not with any uniform movement, but in dizzying swings and jerks that sent us sometimes only a few hundred yards, sometimes nearly the complete circuit of the world. Our progress downward at each revolution was slow, but very perceptible. Looking about me upon the wide waste of liquid ebony on which we were thus born, I perceived that our boat was not the only object in the embrace of the world. Both above and below us were visible fragments of vessels, large masses of building, timber, and trunks of trees, with many smaller articles such as pieces of house furniture, broken boxes, barrels, and staves. I have already described the unnatural curiosity which had taken the place of my original terrors. It appeared to grow upon me as I drew nearer 
and nearer to my dreadful doom. I now began to watch, with a strange interest, the numerous things that floated in our company. I must have been delirious, for I even sought amusement in speculating upon the relative velocities of their several descents toward the foam below. This fir tree, I found myself at one time saying, will certainly be the next that takes the awful plunge and disappears. And then I was disappointed to find that the wreck of a Dutch merchant ship overtook it and went down before. At length, after making several guesses of this nature and being deceived in all, this fact, the fact of my invariable miscalculation, set me upon a train of reflection that made my limbs again tremble and my heart beat heavily once more. It was not a new terror that thus affected me, but the dawn of a more exciting hope. This hope arose partly from memory and partly from present observation. I called to my mind the great variety of buoyant matter that strewed the coast of Lofoden, having been absorbed and then thrown forth by the Moscow Strong. By far, the greater number of the articles were shattered in the most extraordinary way, so chafed and roughened as to have the appearance of being stuck full of splinters. But then I distinctly recollected that there were some of them which were not disfigured at all. Now, I could not account for this difference except by supposing that the roughened fragments were the only ones which had been completely absorbed, that the others had entered the whirl at so late a period of the tide, or, for some reason, had descended so slowly after entering, that they did not reach the bottom before the turn of the flood, or of the ebb, as the case might be. I conceived it possible, in either instance, that they might thus be whirled up again to the level of the ocean, without undergoing the fate of those which had been drawn in more early or absorbed more rapidly. I made also three important observations. The first was that as a general rule, the larger the bodies were, the more rapid their descent. The second, that between two masses of equal extent, the one spherical and the other of any other shape, the superiority in speed of descent was with the sphere. The third, that between two masses of equal size, the one cylindrical and the other of any other shape, the cylinder was absorbed the more slowly. Since my escape, I have had several conversations on this subject with an old schoolmaster of the district, and it was from him that I learned the use of the word cylinder and sphere. He explained to me, although I have forgot the explanation, how what I observed was, in fact, the natural consequence of the forms of the floating fragments, and showed me how it happened that a cylinder, swimming in a vortex, offered more resistance to its suction and was drawn in with greater difficulty than an equally bulky body of any form whatever. There was one startling circumstance which went a great way in enforcing these observations and rendering me anxious to turn them to account, and this was that at every revolution we passed something like a barrel, or else the yard or the mast of a vessel, while many of these things, which had been on our level when I first opened my eyes upon the wonders of the whirlpool, were now high up above us and seemed to have moved but little from their original station. I no longer hesitated what to do. I resolved to lash myself securely to the water cask upon which I now held, to cut it loose from the counter, and to throw myself with it into the water. I attracted my brother's attention by signs, pointed to the floating barrel that came near us, and did everything in my power to make him understand what I was about to do. 
I thought at length that he comprehended my design. But whether this was the case or not, he shook his head despairingly and refused to move from his station by the ring bolt. It was impossible to reach him. The emergency admitted of no delay, and so, with a bitter struggle, I resigned him to his fate, fastened myself to the cask by means of the lashings which secured it to the counter, and precipitated myself with it into the sea without another moment's hesitation. The result was precisely what I had hoped it would be. As it is myself who now tell you this tale, as you see that I did escape. And as you are already in possession of the mode in which this escape was effected, and must therefore anticipate all that I have farther to say, I will bring my story quickly to conclusion. It might have been an hour or thereabout after my quitting the smack when, having descended to a vast distance beneath me, it made three or four wild gyrations in rapid succession, and bearing my loved brother with it, plunged headlong at once and forever into the chaos of foam below. The barrel to which I was attached sunk very little farther than half the distance between the bottom of the gulf and the spot at which I leaped overboard before a great change took place in the character of the whirlpool. The slope of the sides of the vast funnel became momentarily less and less steep. The gyrations of the whirl grew, gradually less and less violent. By degrees, the froth and the rainbow disappeared, and the bottom of the gulf seemed slowly to uprise. The sky was clear, and the winds had gone down, and the full moon was setting radiantly in the west, when I found myself on the surface of the ocean in full view of the shores of Lofenden, and above the spot where the pool of the Moskostrom had been. It was the hour of the slack, but the sea still heaved in mountainous waves from the effects of the hurricane. I was borne violently into the channel of the Strom, and in a few minutes was hurried down the coast into the grounds of the fishermen. A boat picked me up, exhausted from fatigue, and, now that the danger was removed, speechless from the memory of its horror. Those who drew me on board were my old mates and daily companions, but they knew me no more than they would have known a traveler from the spirit's land. My hair, which had been raven black the day before, was as white as you see it now. They say, too, that the whole expression of my countenance had changed. I had told them my story. They did not believe it. I now tell it to you, and I can scarcely expect you to put more faith in it than did the merry fishermen of Lofenden.